You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast with your hosts, Robert Gowan, Rudy Lindsay, Mike Pritz, and Kat Kalin. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good. Good God. It's like, what, five o'clock in the morning there? It's five in the morning. It's fresh. <laughs> <laughs> Have you had your coffee yet? Uh, not yet. I didn't want to wake the kids up, so I left the machine off. Oh. That's okay. I can work without it. Were you up like at 4 a.m. there? Uh, yeah, about that. It's not a bad time of the day to get up, to be honest. Yeah. You still used to it from old your habits. military days? Yeah, old habits die hard. Yeah. You joined the military when you were 16 years old. I always find that interesting from both those from the United Kingdom, you know, that joined the military as well as from Australia, so young, whereas here we join at 17 with parental consent and then 18 normally. Yeah. Yeah, I was 17 when I joined. I left home at 16, worked on a cattle station, sheep station for a while, then uh, joined the military at 17 with parental consent, and then found myself in Somalia at 19. Oh, my God. eye-opening. Yeah, to say the least. Yeah, but um, I think my experiences or the, the Australian experiences in Somalia were probably a little bit different than the American experiences, to be fair. Yeah. Now you join as an enlisted soldier, but then you rose up to the rank of major. So is may is the officer corps and the enlisted corps very much like the United States, um, or is it a little bit different? Yeah, it's different. And um, what I did was reasonably unique. At the sergeant level, I was qualified for warrant officer. And then what happened is I uh, transitioned. So did salary assessments transitioned and was sponsored by my unit to then be a first-year captain, which is unusual. It's the Army Senior Warrant Officer Commissioning Scheme. And um, so what happened is I had all these friends who were sergeants in my peer group, and then suddenly I was a I was an officer, so those guys are no longer my friends. And all the officers <laughs> looked at me as a sergeant, so now I had no friends as, as officers, so I was just left all on my own again for, for a few years until I established myself. But... Um, yeah, it's a it's a good scheme. It's it's reasonably rare for guys to go from sergeant through to through to major and also have command of a platoon and company. When you went into the special forces, did you do that from? Were you like an infantry or what skill were you in at the time? Yeah, I was uh, I was in the commando unit from its inception in nineteen ninety seven. We we raised a, a brand new full time commando capability in the Australian military, and I was on that first selection course. Um, I was a, uh, a lance corporal at the time. I think we had a, about an 80% attrition rate right. through, the, through the, the company that was selected. Um, some great stories came out of that process. And then, um, yeah, and, and then I, my, the rest of my career was from 1996, actually onwards, was in, in the commando unit, 2nd Commando Regiment. So I don't know that much about the Australian Special Forces. I do, of course, about U.S. Special Forces. So how does how do they differ? It sounds like the training was very much similar in terms of weeding out and selecting only the top percentage, and not everybody makes it through. I mean, it's typically a year or longer within the U.S. Special Forces for the training and selection. Is it pretty much the same as well for Australian forces? Yeah, it's not much. It's not much different. Um... The Australian Special Forces obviously is small given our population size and relative size of our Defence Force. The training systems that we employ are quite similar to that uh, of the Rangers and and also the ODA, the USSF. The units, uh, SASR, uh, Special Air Service Regiment, 
is our, I guess, tier one, to use a better term. We don't have tiers in Australia, but uh, the Americans understand that. They're, they're our tier one uh, unit. Our second commando regiment is probably similar to uh, the Rangers, similar to the ODA, similar to Joint Task Force 2. There's no real like unit in the world that compares to Second Commando Regiment in the skill sets. We hold domestic counterterrorism capability and we hold you know, direct action strike and a few other few other niche capabilities as well that, that aren't replicated in any one unit other than ours. So I, I guess um, you know when you start talking about all the different flavours of special forces around the world, it's easy to to pigeonhole yourself and think that you that ourselves are the you know the, the masters of this or that but we're all fairly similar i think at that top tier so that's 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 us in a, in a nutshell i guess it's not it's not dissimilar to to u.s special operations command except on a smaller scale right what do you think is part of the reason why so many don't make it through selection i know here in america it tends to be a lot more part of it of course is the mental aspect of it yeah well, I was, I was fortunate to be the officer in charge of selection for a year. Um, I find that a lot of people select themselves out right. as opposed to us selecting them. And I, I think that, yeah, I think their minds play games on them when they're, uh, you know, what's amazing to me all the time is guys that are scared of the dark yeah. um, or, or being alone uh, in, our, in our modern society. They don't like to be alone for long periods of time. So if you're doing a 24-hour navigation exercise out there in the – in the wilderness and they don't know they're being watched and they might just sit down on their on their pack and not want to go on anymore because they don't have their friends around them to support them. So self-motivation is massive. I think a lot of guys self-select by not having self-motivation, not having that accountability for themselves. Same thing that goes on and, here. Mike Pritz was a command sergeant major, special forces, and also was a schoolhouse instructor. And one of the things he mentioned was the exact same thing. I mean, a, one story he told was how it started pouring down raining and nobody wanted to leave the barracks to get on the truck to move out to maneuvers and everything. They didn't want to go out there because, I mean, it was a torrential downpour that had been going on for a day. So they basically just checked out right then. Some guys got yeah. on the truck and then when they arrived at their spot and they got off the truck and they're soaking wet and the whole bit, they just, they checked out right then as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty, that's pretty common, isn't it? Yeah. Arduous effects of the environment in, in the, uh, in, in the book that I wrote recently, I, I had a little story in there about a uh, a thing that happened on selection. And it's actually it's actually true. I mean, obviously, authors like to do that. They like to wrap truisms in into their stories. But one of the things that I recall is, um, you know, one of the directing staff holding up a, a set of dog tags uh, after a swim test and saying, you know, who's lost their dog tags? And everyone's like looking at each other and it's like, okay, get in the push-up position until someone owns up. Well, no one had lost anything. <laughs> yeah. You know, and the guys are now doing push-ups for the next hour, you know, on a, on a cadence call. And then then what you see is a whole lot of different dynamics coming up. Guys drop out because no one's going to own up. People are abusing each other, you know, sure. under their breath. Someone own up, someone own up. And then finally, someone standing up and just saying, "Yeah, look, that was it was me when it wasn't at all." So now <laughs> their integrity is in doubt, and you can play all these sort of mind games, but you sure. can also work out, you know, you can work out the, the true metal of a man over through that selection process, especially when people are tired, wet, and hungry. Yeah, it's 
it's pretty sadistic and enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> That's the same thing that Mike would talk about as well. And he talked about all the different games and stuff like you were mentioning that they used to play. But like you said, most of it's though just the individuals all of a sudden just checking themselves out and coming up with some strange reasons why it is that they didn't want to continue. So I always found that fascinating. And the same thing it sounds like with your... It's an interesting process. Yeah. You went on the counterterrorism side of the Special Air Service Regiment. Tell me a little bit about that side of it. Is that very similar to like our <coughs> Delta Force? Yeah, so our, our national counterterrorism team is held in two parts, half on the East Coast, half on the West Coast. Uh, Special Air Service Regiment holds the West Coast and the 2nd Commando Regiment holds the East Coast capabilities. Uh, my first run through there was uh, I was on the first selection for our counterterrorism team 2002 so September 11 obviously affected everyone in the world and it, its effect on us was that we created a, a second tag that tactical assault group was stood up over about a year and a half it took us to do go through all the training um, most of that training was conducted at Swanbourne Western Australia and the SASR ran that for the 2nd Commando Regiment until we had trained our own trainers. And then, and then, yeah, I spent three years after that as the senior sniper for the tactical assault group, which is, you know, as a sergeant, you're basically the second in charge of the platoon, but also the senior, senior uh, technical advisor on all things sniping. And then that's where I then commissioned at the end of that. So I went away for a few years, did some other jobs, you know, paid my penance as a, as a junior captain. And then in my fourth year, I came back as the platoon commander for the sniping platoon inside the tactical assault group. Um, so it's a national capability of last resort. It's similar to what's held by Dev Group, CAG, you know. The, right. It's, 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 the, it's the force of choice when everything else is gone south and can't, can't work. And, you know, the guys take it really seriously. Um, obviously. Oh, yeah. But uh, the interesting thing was, you know, coming from the national counterterrorism team, we had a, a rotation system. And the year that I was the platoon commander, you know, because the snipers were also soldiers as well, so we were trained to be, to assault, you know, buildings, trains, aircraft, everything else. And um, what I found interesting on our rotation through Afghanistan the year after was in the first firefight that we had, in amongst some complexes in, I think it was in Argandab province, the whole platoon just stood there, you know, as if they were doing CT drills down the range. And uh, and I think I, rem I remember looking around, being the only one on my guts at the time while we were getting shot at, going, what the hell are you guys doing? You're not in the team anymore. You need to get on your guts. And uh, I think everyone just, because you, because you fire anything up to 9,000 rounds each a week from the standing position, you know, body armor forwards. Sure engaging you know engaging targets in, inside closed spaces you get really good at that and you forget what it's like to be out in the green belt being shot at by a pkm you think you can just stand there return fire with your with your m4 at 100 meters standing and it just doesn't You're right it, it doesn't work as well yeah so we we learned a lesson that day mm. I uh, saw a video I don't know if it's you that posted it up on Instagram or somebody did where there was a a reporter that happened to be standing around and started off the her job of, you know, telling the story or something. And then all of a sudden, I don't know if it was a mortar round or something went off and everybody stood still 
had no reaction whatsoever, but she's like falling all over the place and going crazy. And you could tell the difference between those that were seasoned veterans that have been in that environment and obviously somebody that's a civilian that was not accustomed to it. So, yeah, uh, I, yeah I mean, we've I've got <laughs> how many videos like that have we seen? You know, the, the 107 rounds that would come flying over the position, the only person that would duck would be the, the media guys because you know if it's if you're hearing it, yeah, it hasn't, it's, gone, <laughs> it's gone past you. But, um, yeah, I think you're right. You get conditioned to certain things and then there's it's, – it's a really um, important skill of a commander to understand the conditioning of your soldiers and then be able to adjust that conditioning dependent on the environment that you're working in. Uh, it takes takes a bit of time and effort. How are you guys dealing with the MTBI, the you know traumatic brain injury and post traumatic stress? Are you finding that within your military service, and are you are you guys developing a program to help on the way out as they're transitioning? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and there's so many questions inside that question. I'm still formulating my own understanding of of the whole PTSD space. Um, you've probably seen through some of the stuff on the Instagram that I don't like victim mentality. Yeah. I don't like, I really don't like um, veterans for use of a better term, even coming home and then, and then feeling that they have to adopt some sort of characteristic, characteristic traits because society expects that of them. There's definitely people that have PTSD. There's, there's no doubt about it. Um, you know, that, that there's people who've been through really traumatic experiences and seen, seen things that, that they weren't prepared for. But there's also a lot of people who are just, who I think mistake PTSD for separation anxiety disorder, you know, things where they've been in a high performing team for so long and then suddenly that's taken away and now they have depression. And if they say all the right things and do all the right things during their exit interviews with the psychologists, um, if the word PTSD comes up, even if it's just in conversation between the two, now it, it becomes folklore. You've got PTSD. Right. Um, yeah. So I think we're not doing ourselves any favours by by, you, by using reductionist theories and, and saying that you're a veteran, you've got PTSD. It's just not the case. And I certainly saw that with with the numbers of guys who are, who are reporting with it and what units they're from it is an interesting indicator that something's going wrong with the way that we're either training or the way that we're receiving ourselves when we come back. So, you know, Second Commando Regiment wore the brunt of most of the deaths in in uh, and, and most of the combat in Afghanistan um, in 10 years. And in that time, the, the amount of guys that had presented with PTSD is minimal. Now, I believe that a lot of that is because we quite actively use things like Dave Grossman's on killing and on combat to battle inoculate ourselves before we go over there. Um, we have a good system in place with our, you know, supporting psychologists where we talk about the combat that we've seen and, and things that we've had to do. And I think that that makes it easier to um, make sense of it in your own mind. I assume that some of the infantry units and, and some of the other um, support units that find themselves in, in harm's way and through these critical incidents probably don't have that same level and therefore they're more susceptible to PTSD. Um, but I just think that the next step to make is to look at people returning into society and, you know, 
not having this uh, victim mentality. Uh, what was really interesting was the, the, the push-ups, push-up challenge that went all over the internet yeah, for the weeks and weeks. 22 you know, push-ups and, and, yeah. Right. And the statistics just aren't true. I yeah. mean, I know, I know people are going to hate me saying that, but... No, no, I know. think it's. I think I agree with you that they haven't found anything... Well, I mean, there's tons of studies, but it's like any other study. You'll find one that agrees and you'll find one that disagrees. I mean, yeah. one. I think we would both agree that one loss is one too many. But I think when you start putting a number on it or starting to label it, I think that's that's kind of what we're talking about. Yeah, it's way it's so too easy. It's a reductionist view to label something that simply and then brush it across the board because yeah. you know, the the fact of the matter is that what what constitutes a veteran? What constitutes a service person? You know, who? what constitutes a suicide? There's all these different variable factors. And then the statistics that people throw on top of it that are just too easy to, to say it. But, um, you know, if, if 22 people were truly killing themselves every day, you know, and if they were Afghan veterans, you know, we, we would there would be a huge outpouring of, you know, people saying, what is going wrong here? But, you know, I've seen, I've seen reports that, you know, we're, we're talking about people from, the end of World War Two through Vietnam, Korea, right. Korea, Vietnam, you know, Somalia, Iraq, Afghanistan, and a lot of these people have been out of the military for a long time. And that what they are is a cross section of society and males with depression, right? Um, or, yeah, or PTSD, sure, but it's just not. It's it's just um, yeah. As I say, it's it's a reductionist view to, and it's too easy to sit inside. It's too easy for it to sit inside a, a certain um, narrative. And for everyone to think that it's from 2000 to 2010 for the combat that we've seen in Afghanistan, it's just it's just uh, disingenuous, I think. Yeah, and it doesn't help. It doesn't help. No, I don't. I think it's uh, starting to become a label to the veteran community. Actually, yeah. I mean, when you're starting to portray, well, if it's not already being portrayed within television, movie, and everything else, there's going to be a movement towards that, just because. There is a belief that's out there. If you say it enough and it becomes aware enough, people start believing that most veterans returning from combat are dealing with post-traumatic stress. It's just right, going to pop exactly. into there. It's a perception. It's, then. it's not. It's it's not fair on us. Yeah. And I mean, I have friends from the special forces community who are who are MBA graduates from Wharton. There, there's other guys who are millionaires. There's entrepreneurs. There's people who've written you know a host of books. Uh, the, the list is endless of developers, guys who build companies. You know, these guys are exemplary Australians. And, and the fact of the matter is that industry, if you say to an industry, an industry person, I was in the military for 20 years and, hey, here I am, you know, hire me. Now what's happened is they think that, that you're broken. Right. It's just not the case. It's sad because it does become more of a perception. And, I've you know, working out within the private sector, both of us have seen it where in many cases, if a perception is built, it becomes a reality. Whether or not it's true, it doesn't matter. Perception rules. Agreed, yeah. And and it's just not, a like you said, it's not a healthy one that's out there. I don't know how it is in Australia, but we have a ton of nonprofits here in America, and especially, I would say 22 of those are developed per day. If we were talking about 22, because it seems yeah. like there's a constant flow of nonprofits supporting the veteran community. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Other than what we end up creating, perhaps, is a society or a group of individuals that feel some sense of entitlement as well. 
And I get concerned about that as a veteran of seeing my brothers and sisters coming back and kind of having that sense of, well, they're going to take care of me or this is going to be taken care of. Instead of, like you said, having that that confidence in everything that's been given to you as a, a military member and taking that with you into society and using that as a good and, and marching forward with all the goals, passion and purpose that you had in the very beginning. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, it's up to guys like you and myself and, you know, those that are establishing themselves in other um, industries to, to carry the flag forward for veterans. And, you know, I mean, and show, change that narrative, show it in a positive light. I mean, I think, I think it was in the book Tribe where he talks about people came back from World War Two, and now they were stocking shelves, you know. It still has to be done. Yeah. Things, those, those menial jobs still have to be done. We shouldn't expect that we're going to walk in and be the CEO of General Electric just because we've been a, you know, yeah. because we've been a combat veteran few individuals that return back and the first thing that they think of is that they can tell their story either to make it a movie or to make it a book or something of that nature and so they end up thinking that they're going to be an instant millionaire through that means as well and you're an author I, I I've authored a book and I certainly probably am not at the level that you are but just knowing that that's not an easy road, you know, it's it's sort of like being an actor in a lot of ways where you end up waiting on tables well before you end up walking into Hollywood on the red carpet. Yeah. So yeah. that's been my, my experience is, I mean, being a military thriller author is, for me, it was a uh, an easy step to take because I like to talk about the military. I loved my service in the military and I... And I think that storytelling through, you know, the medium uh, of books is a good way to express our uh, particular experiences. But again, it's one of those things where just because I've written a book and it's been published, I'm not a millionaire. Right. Automatically. Uh, people yeah. have to buy it. People have to buy it. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of like the Instagram followers. If you have 100,000 Instagram followers, doesn't that mean that that equates to $100,000? or Yeah. Same type of thing, and I find it very interesting. And, and we had a, a gentleman from the UK that came on and had written a book about actually the police force because when he got out of the service, he became a, a policeman over in, in London and saw a lot of traumatic things as a police officer working in Scotland Yard. And one of the things he did was to help himself with PTSD and hit the struggles that he had, both from being a police officer uh, not so much from being a soldier, but he took that and built that within his character to kind of help society understand a lot of what police officers deal with and all that through the character of the book, not right. not portraying himself or trying to say, there I was in the valley of death type of thing, but you know, trying to explain it in a way to where people can understand a character and understand perhaps some of the, the trauma that goes along with it. Yeah, I, and I, I, could have, I could have gone down the path of, of writing my memoirs and and then putting it out you know but um i think that through through these fictional characters you're able to you're able to bring more stories to bear and also you can change the you can change the situations and you can change the narratives to suit yourself so something that might have been a really difficult period and in, in my command in afghanistan i can flip it and change it in the book and and now I've changed history in my mind as well. So it's it's quite a cathartic process to be to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, do you find that it it helps in in dealing with some of the the trauma yourself then? Well, 
I mean, again, I don't see anything that I did to um, – it didn't impact me too much, to be, to be honest. Yeah. I think I think what it probably helped me with was understanding even at a deeper level some of the decisions that I, that I had to make and some of the – some of the decisions that my platoon had to make under under pressure, um, as you know, you know every day you're given uh, a, a, you know a test of your command, of your leadership style, of yourself as a person in Afghanistan. Um, and I think that what I've tried to do is capture a lot of those tests in in the book, and then show the thought process behind the commander and how he dealt with those. Mm-hmm. So so that 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 for me. Uh, that for me was quite, you know, cathartic, as I say. But I do know people who who have PTSD that, that write because of it, right? Um, and they find it, it it does help. But yeah, so I sort of I sort of answered that in a roundabout sort of way because you know I, I think you know I don't I don't have PTSD. I'm, I struggle a little bit with with what it what it is that people are talking about. I was you know, clearly depressed when I left the military because I wanted to stay there. Right. Um, but I had other things to do. And I, but I find that the book writing, um, the second book now as well, it brings me a lot of, a lot of joy. I get to, I get to relive things in it, which is, which is what we all want to do is go back and do all the cool stuff, like <laughs> jump out of aircraft at night <laughs> into water and not land for a change. Yeah. You know, things like that. <laughs> uh, how was your transition from the service? How did you find the whole experience? Well, after after twenty one years in the military, the transition was rapid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and the experience was the experience was good. I I, I went and worked for a, a manpower company that provides um, support to the UAE military. So I did that for for a couple of years. Um, started writing. Uh, I, I I actually did some technical advising for for a book and mm-hmm. was paid for that. And then I was sitting in a cafe one day looking over a manuscript and I think all the mums were there with their prams and their baby chinos and I looked around and it was it was a far cry from, you know, Zabat Kalei in Afghanistan and uh, I remember thinking to myself, I could do this, I could do this for a living. Yeah. And then I, I talked to the publisher that I was working with at the time and she said, well, have you thought about writing a military thriller? There's no one in Australia that's, that's in that genre. Um, you've got Andy McNabb and Chris Ryan and, in, in the UK who sell in Australia very well. And so I'm now in, a, in, a, in the process of establishing my myself, my brand, in order to take some of that lion's share of, of their uh, of their work, I guess. So and it's just it's about creating an offering and being able to wedge it in there between those really big names. The transition for everyone is challenging. Yeah. Um, when you're institutionalized and, and when you love it as much as what we all do, life goes on. Yeah. Did, did you guys have a transition assistance program? I mean, we have a program that's supposed to help us. It's like two weeks long. And I think for myself, and it seems to be the same for many others, it didn't really help. Yeah. I mean, you're on your own yeah. once you leave. There, there was nothing when, when I left other than you know a couple of handshakes and a morning tea was offered. Um, <laughs> So it was, you know, I think that you, with Australians, our culture is a little bit different as well. You need to reach out. You're not going to be, you're not going to be reached to for these things. It can be done better. Yeah. It can be done a lot better. So, so no. 
Now, we follow each other a lot dealing with, of course, I've shared a lot of your posts related to mentoring and mentorship and a lot of the things that you talk about and lifting up, of course, the veteran community and the military, active duty military community as well that tend to follow us. And we have a lot of people that never serve that also are in that. And I love seeing a lot of your posts that you you have because they're very uplifting, inspiring, or empowering. And that's one of the things that I enjoy doing in either giving a leadership lesson or something of that nature. And it's my way of giving back. It's my way as well of doing these podcasts, uh, of course, with yourself and other veterans of trying to give back and tell a story and, and show others that there are ways to move forward, you know, once you separate from active duty. Or if you're on active duty, like our last guest, and you're having some struggles or difficulties, you're going to get past it. Yeah. No, I really appreciate that you share some of my content. You know, the way I look at it, the the key thing that military guys are really good at doing is looking at a problem and stripping it down to its bare essentials without all of the fluffy stuff around it. And so what I've tried to do is I've tried to break down all the characteristics that, that make up you know, the best operators and the best officers from the, from our special forces community, and then and then try and understand, try and try and use words to understand what it is that makes that person the way they are, and then how can you know how can someone then apply that to their own personal life outside of the military in, in a lot of aspects, uh, and through the through the process of the Instagram page, a lot of my a lot of the followers are, you know, they're teenage boys to uh, you know to in their early 20s that are thinking about joining the military or or they didn't join the military and they're doing something else now and they wish they had, but they, they understand the value uh, of the discipline, you know, of the accountability, the leadership, of everything that we do. And so they, yeah, they reach out quite a lot. I mean, I spend most of my days, if I'm not writing my next book, I'm, I'm going back and I'm, I'm individually talking to guys, you know, through direct message about challenges that they have, uh, you know, it, it becomes draining, but it's it's also, I think it's a responsibility. Yeah. Um, I find the yeah, same thing. Take, yeah. yeah. Through Instagram, through email, same thing. I mean, we have individuals <clears throat> that are either looking for some sense of mentoring, guidance, or like you said, they're a youth that's thinking about joining a branch of the military. And it's always, I'm thinking about joining X service, or I'm not sure which one, what should I do? You know, those types of things, which, uh, yeah. you know, half the time they're not they're not at the stage yet of actually talking to a recruiter because they're not old enough yet. But they're just trying to, yeah. to get an understanding and, and a, a sense of where should they go. And, my and I think that the, there's a, the, the, real, the real travesty for me is that until this point, Australian Special Forces can't see the utility of that or the value of that. So I'm sort of out there on my own talking to... Probably this year, probably four hundred. Oh my gosh! Who, like I, I get maybe five five messages a day. Wow, from, Bram, that's from, a lot, man. From, I I don't get that many. Yeah, yeah, it's it is prolific, <laughs> you know. And some of them, are, some of them, I don't answer. Most of them, I do. And um, most of them are about how do you pass selection or the Special Forces Direct Recruiting Scheme, which is an ab initio off-the-street scheme that we have in Australia, which is, you know, oh, by the way, has produced more gallantry winners than came from wider army to us. So, wow. you know, the, ge- the, the, the Generation Y really adopted that direct recruiting scheme, and we've had some brilliant soldiers go through it. 
Um, but yeah, I get I get a lot of messages, and I and they're things from fitness to you know because I obviously do some of the CrossFit stuff on the page as well. Healthy mind, healthy body. So some of the stuff's dietary, some of the stuff's fitness, some of the stuff is some of the questions are about the selection course itself. Some of the questions are about you know the transition that has to be made from regular infantry to commando. All the all those sort of questions. Right. Some of the questions are questions they don't need to ask yet. <laughs> but they just want someone to, to right. reinforce and to to encourage them that maybe they're not getting that at home. I don't know. But it's um you know, and then some of the questions are from guys who've left the military. You know, that just want to make sense of what it was that they've done. Now, I'm saddened to see that there's a lot of guys out there that hold the military accountable for the way their lives are now, as opposed to taking accountability for the way their lives are now. I think it's too easy to blame an establishment for who you are. Yeah, it goes back to that victim mentality that you were talking about earlier. I mean, it's the same thing, really. Yeah, well, you know what? This time last year, guys like you and I weren't talking about PTSD. No. We weren't. The, re- the reason we weren't talking about it is because if you said something about it, you were going to get shouted down in the streets. Absolutely. People. Whereas now, we're, we're, what's un- what I'm starting to understand now is that there's a groundswell of movement in the defense community where where they don't want to be branded with with you know this victim mentality. Yeah, I think that's and I think that's the that's the point that we have to understand is that people are now discussing it and talking about it sensibly. Um, and I've got that book here, Sebastian Younger. Oh, I don't know that I've seen that before. Actually, you know, I've heard the name Tribe as a book as a title, but I haven't seen the yeah, cover. This is a this is a this is a smart guy. You know, Sebastian Younger is someone who's he's self-made. He knew what he wanted to be, but he's been he's been around guys of your and my ilk his whole life without a weapon. Hmm. So he's been able, you know, with a video camera. So he's been able to go out into the places we've been, and he's he's been able to see the machinations of war. And and he, if you read that, you you get that sense that we need to stop with the labelling of all servicemen, veterans, PTSD, all, all this labelling just does us no good. Right. Well, it's part of the it's problem. Really- even with basic society, it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. When we start putting labels on things, that's when you start actually separating individuals, and it's not going to go down a healthy path. Mm, I agree. Yeah. You have a new book coming out. First, tell us about your first book, the title and everything. You mentioned it in the very beginning, but I want also for you to share about the book, the title, and where people can find it in case they're searching for yeah, it. Yeah, sure. You'd be sick of hearing about the first one from Instagram. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know you've seen this. Yes, absolutely. The fighting season. <laughs> yeah, so the first one's called The Fighting Season. It's set in uh, Afghanistan, 2010. The story is a modern-day Anzac tale. Uh, Anzacs are – we use the term Anzac as a, as a cultural hook for Australian New Zealand um, Army Corps. So, so from World War One, it has a lot – it's steeped in history. But, so the story is a modern-day Anzac tale. Uh, much of the content pertains to moral as well as physical courage. Uh, the hero of the book, Matt Ricks, really doesn't start to win until he's able to take the gloves off and fight the enemy uh, on his own terms. So I think that's good because a lot of commanders can associate with the fact that they had to do things outside the chain of command's knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, 65 slides to get approval to go and do a you know vehicle <laughs> convoy? I mean, seriously. Anyway. <laughs> um, I've written what I consider to be a, a great portrayal of 
uh, modern combat from from a commander's perspective. And I've tried to I've tried to accurately show how soldiers you know shoot, move, communicate under the most stressful situations. And I think from the feedback that I've had from the general population, those not in the military, some of them find it harrowing. And from the military themselves, the detail of, you know, things like the magazine changes and, you know, putting the ejected round after you've unloaded your weapon under the next round and things like that. They, they, they dig that because someone right. knows what they're talking about as opposed to, you know, you, you get some of these military thriller authors who, who talk about releasing a thumb catch on their Sig Sawyer, you know, <laughs> and you're like, okay. <laughs> but, um, you know, th- so anyway, and, and no offence to the American, massive American audience that you have, but let's have an Australian action hero. Um, <laughs> well, we have Bond from the UK. You're right. We don't have anybody from Australia. We've got No, and we've got Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. He's ready to play it, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Just need to, just need him to get in contact with me. But I believe that storytelling through the medium of fiction, you know, the best way I know of conveying to the general public the excitement, the danger, uh, and the fear that's experienced by a modern soldier. Because there's, there's so many emotions wrapped up in combat, right? That we don't we just don't exploit. And so using fiction to to explain that, you know, is a lot easier than me writing my non-fiction accounts because people are going to go, well, that's bullshit. Yeah. There's no way you've done that. There's no way that happened. This right. didn't happen. Whereas when you put it into fiction, people believe it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> They're not going to question it at all. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Now, can you find this at like uh, some of the major outlets here in the U.S., like Barnes & Noble, Amazon, <laughs> stuff like that? Um, so the, the publishing industry is really interesting. Uh, the protectionisms yes. <laughs> and the tariffs around it. Yeah. So... <laughs> It's available. It's available now through Amazon for as a Kindle download. Okay, I know that because I've done it. Like I've downloaded it now three times. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't like the first version? No, I just like to boost sales. Um, <laughs> it's it's available through a company called Book Depository, and uh, it's it's worldwide free delivery through them. And they're they're a competitor of Amazon, so not many not many people are using them. But yeah, it's Book Depository. Is that bookdepository.com? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay. And my understanding is that there's going to be a limited run sent to the US uh, this fall, so it'll be available in a few shops. But it's not going to be. It's not going to be. The market is so good. I'd love to break into that market. But to be fair, the book is very Australian centric, and and I, I don't think the publisher wanted to take that gamble yet. Um, perhaps in the second book, which is a little less Australian and a little bit more global. But yeah, I mean. If 1% of the population of America wants to jump on and buy the book for Christmas through Book Depository, I'll be a very happy man. <laughs> Still have plenty of time to download it. That's right. Absolutely. Uh, where can they find more about you? Of course, you have the Bram.Conley on Instagram. Is yep. there other locations they can find you? Yeah, so Instagram is, is probably the easiest easiest way to follow. You can you can see some of my failed uh, CrossFit <laughs> clean, <laughs> clean bits. I wouldn't say um, that. Uh, and there's a link on there to my author's page as well, which is uh, it's got a good little following now. It's nearly four and a half thousand people on the on the on the Facebook page. That's great. And I interact with people on there. Yeah, I get some great ideas from people on characters and you know who they'd like to see and what they'd like to see in the next book. And it, it's become a little bit of a collaborative effort, which is yeah. Um, yeah, it's really great. I've had some really good feedback too from from the states from. Uh, 
from some of the Islamic community, you know, they were quite uh, happy with the fact that I portrayed both sides of the, the fight, you know. So the, I didn't just show, you know, I mean, the Taliban, they're human as well. They've got, this, you know, there's things going on in their lives and, you know, my, my degree is in global societies and, and peace studies. So so I spent a lot of time while I was over there fighting them and I spent a lot of time over there, while, you know, understanding them as well. And I've tried to capture that in the book so that people can see this is the guy you're fighting. This is the reason he's doing it. This is why he's saying what he's saying. You know, or this is this is the really complex thing that we're not talking about, which is the fact that this guy's a farmhand and his kids are being held by the Taliban, and that's why he's doing what he's doing. Things are never what they seem. Um, and I think that it's important for, for the readers to, when they get in amongst that book, they, they start to get a feel for that complexity um, because it's not just two sides out there fighting each other. Yeah. So when, how far along are you on the second book then? Not far enough. Okay. <laughs> um, I've got a due, my due date is 31st December. Uh, it'll be an 80,000 word book. I'm at about 45,000 words at the moment, but wow. you know, I had to, I had to go to Turkey and, and, and see the area that I was writing about because some of it's set in Istanbul and that was quite, it was quite difficult to, to just do it off of a Lonely Planet book. So I went there and walked the streets and now I'm in a better position to, to crack on with it. Um, should be finished by mid-December and then the editing will start and the next book will be released in August next year. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on a few other things at the moment too. I'm looking at starting a, uh, a blog and I'm just trying to work out the angle behind that you know, the bottom line up front sort of sort of aspect to it. So a lot of the things that you're seeing on my Instagram page will then reappear there in more depth. Yeah. Um, well, I, and I love that the kind of coaching and mentoring that you're doing there. And if you continued that in a blog format, I think it would be awesome. Yeah, I think I think that would be something I'd like to do. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's one of those things where it's great to sit down and put all your time and effort into, into these different you know, aspects of your own life, but you have to monetize them in some way as well because you still have to eat. Yeah, um, right. And that's that's the thing is visualization is one thing, but actually executing and, and being able to, you know, just, just, just make enough it would be fine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, most mm. definitely. Well, I wish you nothing but the best, my friend. I'm glad that we finally got an opportunity to hook up together and hope that you'll join us again in the future. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate that. And th- thanks for... Thanks for uh, sharing. I spent all this week listening to your um, podcasts, and, and some hopefully that was a good well. thing. So some really great stuff on there. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, it's very good. I wish you all the best. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and at Facebook by searching at Mentors the Number Four M I L. And please subscribe to our podcast. It's free, and it ensures you're the first to hear our latest podcast show. We have several options depending upon your device, and we're at iTunes, SoundCloud, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn Radio. It doesn't matter whether you are searching for your passion or purpose, finding your way through a military or civilian career, working on your fitness, or just about to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Get after it.